under this grazing management, we managed to increase soil organic matter by 5% in one year. Organic matter is 58% carbon, so we're drawing a lot of excess CO2 out of the atmosphere. Welcome to the Quorum Sense podcast, where we explore how New Zealand farmers are creating more resilient, regenerative and enjoyable farming systems. I'm John O'Frew. And I'm Duncan Hum. Today we're joined by Mark Anderson, who's making some exciting progress developing a resilient, regenerative system for his South Otago dairy farm. All right, here we go. Another Quorum Sense podcast. So uh, welcome along, Mark. And obviously we're joined by John O'Frew and we've got in the studio today as a bit of a side host, Jake Huron. So he's in on the game too. So great to be here. Yeah. Welcome, Mark. Thanks. No, it's, a, it's a privilege to be here. Yeah. Good to come and have a discussion with you guys about what we're, we're up to down here in South Otago. For sure. I'll, I'll dive in, Mark, with something that has been on my mind for a while. I've only known you since coming down for, it was actually Ian Mitchell Winnis I came down and, and met you for the first time. You weren't preaching. You were you were just talking about what you were doing, and to see it happening on a on a South Otago dairy farm where the challenges of you know wet winters and and can be dry summers, I thought was pretty pretty damn cool. And and that you weren't weren't just talking the talk. You were you were doing. Um, before it all started for you, Mark, what was one of the drivers that had you start to inquire into doing things a bit differently? And and what was the the first sort of action. Yeah, yeah. Uh, for us, I think it was um, really making those environmental connections and just to see what was unfolding with winter grazing. So that was probably earlier on in yeah, 2016. Um, around that time, we could see the wintering becoming more intensive. So. So yeah, yeah, that was that was probably one of the first points. But I guess I've always had this connection to nature. Um, rewinding a bit, I I guess I've spent a lot of time in the mountains um, through skiing in the snow up there in the mountain tops, um, and I've also done a lot of work with a friend on glaciers, measuring um, the reclining um, or seeding ice in the, in the glaciers. Um, so making connections there, um, I've spent a lot of time overseas um, in mountainous areas as well, um, and then spending a lot of time on the surf, um, and also my wife, Madeline, her father, um, is commercial fisherman, um, and seeing the changes in fish catches over the last 50 years um, and then just kind of putting these connections together, surfing with other fishermen, um, listening to their observations. Um, so really trying to make change in the middle with farming because we know that impacts um, this huge global impact. Um, so yeah, those those connections were there early, um, but I guess what accelerated that was um, I guess human health as well. Um, seeing the decline in human health and then experiencing 
um, that myself with an autoimmune uh, disease. So that really helped excel that that um, connection with the learning and start really seeing things differently. Yeah. Wow. Now that's a unique set of circumstances, isn't it? And it creates a unique perspective. Definitely. So from a like farming point of view, it's a family farm. Was there anything that was like majorly wrong or was it just you could just see that that was the direction that was going and you could see that that wasn't really a future in that. So you had to start thinking about adapting your own, your own how you operate just yourself. So. Yeah, I guess um, even John O has spoken about this um, with his dairy career, um, how I guess I just felt that, yeah, things, things weren't really that balanced. Um, you're working these long hours. Um, and it just felt quite extractive. And I had seen people burn out, relationships burn out over time after working under Shearmilkers itself. Um, and the whole system was just geared for production mindset, so very extractive. Um, and, and yeah, it wasn't until I started making those connections that I could see that. Um, the greater environment deteriorating around us um, and we weren't necessarily giving back as much as what we were taking. Um, so yeah, that was, that was, that was around the point. Yeah. I really, I actually took a drive one winter and just to, just to get off the farm, but just, just to drive around the block to observe other wintering practices and when I came back I kind of confirmed that ours were basically the same as everyone's everyone else's. It was best practice and there was huge soil degradation. Um, and that really drove us to look for other options of wintering. And then from then on it kind of kept snowballing like we we started um, planting different species with our fodder beet. Um, and that was very strange to do at the time because everything was precision planted and done with a recipe. Um, but I really saw chemicals accelerate over that period as well, huge chemical bills, um, chemical shed that never used to be full was all of a sudden stacked walls. <laughs> mm. uh, and, and, that, and it just felt like we were on this treadmill that we couldn't get off. Um, and from then on, we started to look at other practices, uh, um, multi-species winter crops, and we've, we kind of keep progressing on from that as we move towards the pasture system. Yeah, so hopefully that gives a little insight. You're saying about what you're from your surfing time, and obviously with Maddie's, um, you know, coming from a fishing background. So from a fishing context, uh, when you see like the down those downstream effects of like that sediment sediment hitting out to sea. Uh, what are the those key things that the fishermen are seeing or have seen over over the years as farming's intensified? Um, I guess the changing currents uh, is probably a big one. So not so much to do with the sediment, but you know, my father-in-law has always fished um, well out twelve miles off the coast. Um, so he's he's not he's not in that zone in that close zone where Potentially, they're seeing the sediment, etc. But 
so I can't really comment on that. But I, I do. We are we do boundary six kilometres of river here, and that has certainly changed over the over the years since I was a kid. Um, so a lot more sediment in that river now. The macro vertebrae are declining species as well. Um, yeah, I, as a youngster, when we used to eel and walk eel, eel the river and walk that as kids, we there was definitely not that level of sediment. Um, we kind of just pushed the boundaries with farming and tried to farm in areas that potentially shouldn't be being ploughed, etc. Um, so I've definitely seen that over the last thirty years in our stream. Change the change in the stream. Yeah. What about Mark? The is there any? Have you heard any discussions about um, acidification? You know, acidity in the in the ocean from the fishermen. Do they look at at the acidity in the in the ocean? No, I can't really comment on that. I'm not I'm not familiar with that. But I mean, there is a lot of talk around that at present um, globally. Um, ocean acidification and and uh, yeah, 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 coral reef dieback from chemical fertilizers, um, pesticides, etc. Yeah, I mean, dead zones around the world are certainly increasing. There's a couple in New Zealand. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 not looking that pretty. So yeah, that was certainly another driving factor to to look at alternative ways of land stewardship. And these diebacks that are happening too. Um, in the ocean, uh, you know, there's already been canaries in the mines as far as total ecosystem collapse like that uh, in Australia with the gum diebacks in the 60s and 70s and things like that. So, um, yeah, it's well, just a, like Great Barrier Reef. Yeah, and Great Barrier Reef, exactly. You know, something like that. That's that's a total ecosystem collapse happening right there. And yeah, it's not it's not the first ones we've seen. But and no one's talking about it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, we are. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, there's, there's huge challenges like that. When I spent time in America, there's, there's, there's dieback in the trees as well on, on large scale. Yeah, so ecological issues, yeah. So we can sit here and talk all day about, you know, the the state of affairs and, you know, things really aren't looking that pretty. But what I like yeah, about not- you, Mark, is you've not, you, you've taken all this in and then you've gone and done something about it, something that you can actually contribute to, which is, you know, all of us as as land stewards, you know, we forget the impacts of our management choices, don't we? Well, certainly I had no idea, even though when I was farming, I was watching all the rivers around me become unswimmable and drying up. And here I was not blinking an eyelid every time I started my irrigation pump up and every time I followed the cows with 100 kgs of urea every round on the riverbed, you know, just no, no idea, just no clue as to the impact. Yes, yeah, I mean... For us, it's for us going forward. It's really about applying these nature-based um, solutions, and for us, we want to build and regenerate our natural capital um, while we're improving those landscape functions, like the water cycle. Um, and that's a big one for us. We get dry in summer. We're on dry land, no irrigation. So, yeah. Just, just repairing that soil carbon sponge. Um, so we're learning lots about that, um, how we can help manipulate that with our grazing. 
another big goal for us will be reduction of non-renewable resources and just these integration of circular um, type systems. Um, so like the large-scale composting that we're going into, um, we're about to build some Johnson Sioux bioreactors um, as well. Um, but we've got a lot of resource on farm that's just amazing for making compost. So, so yeah, we're we're really looking into that, and and um, I'll probably be pushing Duncan a bit more on that in the future. Yeah. Cool. I'll learn something out of that, no doubt. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we uh, we originally we went down this path as well because the economics weren't stacking up. We were we were really up against the wall. Um, debt levels are still high, but we're 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 clawing them back now um, with the changes we're making. So early on when we came back here, we we were we had quite poor structure and accountability. Um, yeah, structures in place, um, and we were, we were getting quite high empty rates. Um, things weren't that flash that year that you were here, John. with Ian Mitchell on us. You know the cows weren't in good nick. So we were about to go into our second drought. Um, and we'd also just purchased that new 300 acres that had been cropped quite some time, cereal crop. Um, so, and we'd wrap cow numbers up because that was, you know, that was what we'd do. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, I mean, that really, those two droughts put pressure on and, and those low payout years. So economically, we really had to do something drastic otherwise we wouldn't be here and you don't want to be the generation that loses the farm do you <laughs> definitely not <laughs> but how long how long have your family been well, like on your home block there mark how long have you actually your family been there for um so my grandfather farmed this land um my grandfather farmed this land and his parents farmed near here as well so my my kids sixth generation yeah and yeah yeah we we've been dairy farming for 26 years here now father was sheep and beef and he was a good very good sheep and beef farmer and a very good dairy farmer and to take that risk to convert to dairy um in 1995 was quite quite large for this south Australia area there was only potentially two other dairy farms near us which were quite new as well and um, so that was very risky at the time um, and over time the farm here had had share milkers on it 50 50 share milkers as well um, so that kind of model just continued yeah and found when we've come back to the farm to this home farm six years ago we've, we've put a lot of work into the farm fixing things up and um, just getting things compliant as far as effluent systems and um, yeah, just just pumping a bit more back into our capital. Yeah, you talked about uh, risk there, your father going into dairy. Um, do you think what you're doing now was, you know, what was the level of risk there with you changing your ways um, from your perspective? Um, yeah, 
quite risky, but we we did um, we were looking at this this method for probably and studying it very hard for a year or two before we dove in and and talking to Ms. Mr. Belsky as well about it, um, we we could see that it wasn't going to work well for us if we just if we just did sort of like a little bit on the side um, and then maybe we managed that quite quite um, different and if that didn't didn't um, perform then maybe we would just revert back to the other way. So that's why we took this whole systems approach and um, took on board all the soil health principles. Um, what held us back a little bit was that we were still, um, so like with our wintering, the costs were still spread over, say, three different wintering systems. We've got winter pads, we've got um, uh, we had winter crops, and we had bale grazing happening. And to be honest, we were actually forced into doing that bale grazing. Pretty sure it was that year, John and we knew were here. Um, our winter crops didn't grow well because of the drought, so we were forced into trying bale grazing. It was really a North American style of wintering, um, where we literally brought in hay bales and placed them out on the paddock and wintered on them like that. That worked so well that this year we'll, we have no winter crops now and we'll be bale grazing on with all the animals. Yeah. Um, we'll still have the pads up our sleeve, although the cost of the pads is, is will be around double the cost of the bale grazing. So we'll still have the pads. So we've still got all that um, resource in uh, bark chip and sawdust to compost. Um, but we're also we're moving away from that system. So that system will be there as a backup, but that system relies on a lot of silage making. So if we can reduce the silage making, that's another huge cost coming out as well. Mm. Mm, and the dung, you've got, you don't have to move the dung from the platform outwards either. Yes. So we're, we're seeing this, this, um, the system now of not having the winter crops, we've removed nearly $50,000 worth of cultivation um, because of the damage we were doing to the paddocks. Um, each year we saw the contractors come in, the rippers were bigger, there was more horsepower. So the, the, the gear needed to repair the damage had to be stronger each year. Um, so, yeah, just moving away from that has reduced diesel costs so much and more of our, it's just simplified the system. More of our platform is in grass. So now we gain those paddocks back to graze in, say, late spring. So we've got those paddocks um, at big milk production when we need them. And then those paddocks will come out in early autumn, late summer. Um, Shut up for bale grazing, so we've then lost those paddocks um, at our at our um, lowest production time of year. Yeah, so that I mean it's 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 working really well at the moment. Yeah, what was it like, Mark? Um, because I see you as a pioneer, and and especially in the dairy space in New Zealand, and you would have helped a lot of other farmers make changes with confidence, knowing that someone's 
you know, having a crack already. When you started, I don't imagine there was really anyone else doing it that you could work alongside or learn from. So, I mean, is there, is there some truth in that? Was there anyone else doing that when you first started inquiring? Particularly in Southland. Yeah. Um, I have no doubt that there's people around New Zealand doing this, but they're just not out there in the public talking about it. Yeah, you're but sort of just I'm the first sure. one to start sharing. Yeah, I'm sure there's amazing people in New Zealand doing these types of practices. Um, and I guess the point of difference is that we're trying to do it at, on quite a large scale. Um, but yeah, initially, you're right. I, it was very hard to find people that were practicing this with dairy cows. Mm. Um, and uh, I mean, just reading many books, studying online. Um, I sent an email to Jonathan Kemp and he did send back some contacts um, in the States that I could talk to. Generally, they have smaller, very small family organic farms. So that helped a lot. Just actually making connections and understanding the principles of regeneration and how that we can use animals in the system to heal the land was 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 just a and I guess a, an area that we just searched and studied hard. Um, but yeah, initially it was very much uh, like a. Um, and inward battle, mm. do you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. Like trying to change how you um, see things. And like, then to um, also have to talk to, for instance, your parents about, you know, your new insights. How, how did all that go down? That's a Not podcast. Well because those, you're right? battling <laughs> with yourself to make these changes and to have the confidence to make those changes and and. So initially it's very much an inward battle and then it's an outward battle once you begin to implement them because everyone is like, well, what are you doing here? So that still continues, but it just becomes easier. It's certainly not easy, but it becomes easier as you gain more confidence and, to be honest, as more people start doing it and you start learning off each other, um, yeah, it's Fascinating. It's probably not a bad sort of lead into. I'd like to know what it's been like for you being part of the the Quorum Sense Network. Yeah, no, that that's been amazing. We've certainly believed in the nature of that right from the start. That's been amazing. Um, having Gwen here on farm, taking measurements around biodiversity, soil carbon, etc. That was like a huge learning curve as well. That's been amazing. Um, and to be honest, attending that course in Leeston with Nicole Masters, that three-day workshop. That was the one at Lakeside Hall, was it? Or was it at Rugby Club? Hearts Creek. Uh, around the, yeah, I was there. Yeah, that, yeah, that, that was. That group of people, how good was that group of people? They, yeah. were, they are just go-getters, right? Yeah, man. Yeah, that was it. There was certainly a buzz in the room, wasn't there? Just to meet that caliber of people and then keep connections with those people and what they're doing has been, yeah. I did a course beginning of last year with Nicole Masters and Graham Tate as well. 
and you like you say that that room full of people, real go getters, and it's it's so extraordinarily powerful to be in that room full of people with a similar mindset. You sort of you well for me, I walked out of the room feeling fairly bloody bulletproof and like nothing could stop me. And then yeah, you sort of getting home and getting back to reality, and you know, and how do we actually make this work? And, and then yeah, and then you know, being met with the naysayers as well. So that yeah, how, how did you find that, or did you find that? I no, I think that we just stay stayed aligned with the the people that are have the same the same type of um, mindset and. And yeah, just just rubbing shoulders with those people um, has really helped to get us through challenging times. And to be honest, when we have the groups visiting the farm, I'm learning as much off all of these other people that come as they might be learning when they come here. Mm. So it's just an exchange of minds and exchange of information. It's just it's amazing. Yeah. Well, this is this is how nature works. You know, this is how nature functions everywhere. It's always a there's always a occurrence. Everything's always symbiotically working together, whether you can see it or not. And somewhere along the lines, we got a bit lost in feeling like we couldn't share what we had. Our systems reflect our thinking, and and it shows up in not just our farming systems. You know, our, our creativity's dropped somewhat as a result of this disconnection, this this ego driven world that we've shown up in and when you step out of that and start to observe like you did mark the the natural cycles all around us that are working as a whole all of a sudden it starts to ripple out into the way that you operate whether it be on your farm or whatever it is that you do you become part of something bigger don't you that's that's certainly what we're seeing um i mean a lot of the issues we face today are biological issues okay so they're going to need biological systems and nature-based solutions to address them. Um, I mean, think water quality, you think soil loss, biodiversity collapse, drench resistance, all of these are biological issues that need biological thinking. Um, and exactly what you're talking about, the interconnected uh, relationships of nature. Um, and, yeah, we're... We're starting to see that a bit, and you've talked about that around on another podcast about quorum sensing and the emergent properties. Um, Charlie Massey talks about that a lot in his book as well, The Call of the Red Warbler. And there's, we've certainly seen that happening here with, um, with some of our paddocks that were, that were sown in multi species pastures and then changed grazing management on those pastures. We've seen these emergent properties happening where all of a sudden we're growing topsoil, we're increasing organic matter in the soil, we're seeing potassium levels double when we haven't applied any, we're seeing available minerals all on the increase. It's just, it's, it's quite profound. And I guess the consultancy through Integrity Soils has also helped to expand our knowledge and our awareness um, so the coaching that they've given us as well has, has helped immensely. I like what you were talking about there that I do worry that the human is is being dumped a little bit for like AI, artificial intelligence or um, 
the mechanistic, robotized, digitized type of future, yeah, where the human connection is slowly eroded away and is not needed. And I don't see this helping mental health issues or food systems where we need to be actually more connected to where our food is coming from. Yes, yeah, so I, I, I see that as we, as we take up more technology, I can see us becoming more separated from the natural world um, and I think that could have quite big consequences where it already is having. Mm, yeah. I think that's quite important. Yeah, like Mike, even Mike Porter touched on it. He will, he will say that hardware before software. And yeah, I think you're right. We're trying to have all these high-tech solutions to these problems that we've created in our farm systems, all these techno-fixes, whatever it might be, whether it's precision placement of fertilizer or whether it's a plant breeding thing. And, you know, it just leaves out that thought and that engagement of getting your hands in the soil and understanding what's going on. Farming, to me, is as much art as it is science. And so if we're constantly eroding that art form, what it means to be a farmer, where that observation and actually knowing your farm is removed and it makes it all just join the dots. I think you're absolutely bang on there. I mean, that's not saying that there's no AI solution that might be a benefit, but yeah, it's definitely a, uh, these solutions, you know, rather, rather than taking that step back of looking at the problem with those bigger set of eyes and uh, trying, to, trying to solve the problem rather than come up with another problem to solve that problem. Mm. I agree. I agree. I mean, definitely technology is going to help us a lot. Um, as long as that doesn't lead to more consumption of minerals, etc., that we could be putting somewhere else. Because um, you'll you'll know that we've already reached peak phosphate and peak oil, so that means those resources are now on a decline. So we've basically used those resources in a very short period of time, um, and they're non-renewable. So you you don't get those back. Mm. <laughs> um, but no, certainly the the indicators in our paddocks now that we're looking for are. Um, like um, good worm counts, um, infiltration rates for water and biodiversity above and below ground. And we're really starting to get into fungal and bacterial ratios. So we're really feeding fungi now because in our dairy pastures, in the dairy context, a lot of our pastures or soils are bacterial dominated. And as you know, um, bacterial soils love to grow weeds and generally they are compacted lacking air etc so so we're really trying to accelerate our fungal diversity in our pastures here now and the, the fungal composts are going to help that um a little bit of manual aerating the multi-species pastures with deeper root um, and the management practices around the grazing uh, helping on that so yes certainly this whole systems approach we feel is starting to starting to work well again and what have you noticed mark as far as the ripple effects on on you as a person going from 
fighting against nature to working alongside nature? Like you seem like a pretty chill dude. Have you always been this chill? Um, I th- I think I come across as chilled, but not so much underneath. Duck on the water. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but I like this analogy, and it's to do with surfing, where you you're catching the wave, and you're at some points along the wave you're in control, or you need to control, and then other points you need to submit and run with it, and that's very much like um, in this way, the more that we stand back and let things happen, um, the more of these emergent properties we see, and of course at some points that system needs some control, but we're not in there with a recipe controlling things. There's a narrative out there that we have to feed the world, Um, you know, we have to feed 10 billion people by 2050. And, I mean, there's a lot of failures in our food system currently. Um, As you know, food waste, you know, I've heard figures up to 50% of food waste produced globally. Mm. Um, So we don't actually need more food. We just need, we need better food right now. Um, And that's that's the exciting part of this um, that that comes back to soil health and greater nutrition or um, nutritional integrity in the foods um, and Christine Jones talks a lot about that and I've seen many other um, presentations on declining nutrients in our food so yeah that 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 comes back to having the healthy soil so this this way of farming just addresses so many so many challenges we face around around the human health ex- aspect as well yeah so you talked before mark about yeah, solving biological issues with um with biological solutions. Do you relate that to your own health in any way as well with your autoimmune disease? Um, not yet, not yet. I have I have had some some help in that area. Um, but then I actually had to have surgery. So so having to resort to surgery and mainstream medicine or something that had to happen. Um, but now that I'm out of that realm, I can start to look at other, other methods of, of helping out and addressing it in the future. Yeah, definitely. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, I've just had two titanium rods installed in my spine and that was confronting. But, you know, it's a bit like uh, this whole regenerative agriculture thing is we're not saying you can't cultivate. We're not saying you can't apply fertilizer. We're just creating systems that work in our own unique context. and. When I broke my back in four places eight, nine weeks ago, I, that was the solution for that short period of time. But this year they're coming out and I'm going to be going to work on, you know, healing myself naturally beyond that point. But it, it's, it's a cool thing about the systems that we're creating. We're not saying we're over here not doing anything that isn't natural. You know, there's, there's, there's certainly lots of things we do still scratching the back of industrial agriculture just doing it differently. We're not, we're not, you know, purists of, of any kind, but we're working on solutions that work towards that. It's not, um, not going to put the principle ahead of, um, yep, being a sustainable business. Or, correct. Yeah. There's no regeneration yeah. in being broke or having a system that doesn't function. Alan Richardson actually said to me a while ago, we were talking about it. And yeah, he said, realistically to, to be green, we've got to be in the black, you know? So from a business point, yeah, you've got to be making a profit mm. to, to be able to be green. Mm. Yeah. Be responsible for yourself. 
Well, yeah, us and likes of Colin Sice, um, who had the pleasure of meeting last year. I mean, we had no other option but to go down this line. Otherwise, we would be broke. We wouldn't be here. That model just wasn't working for us. Um, but no, I totally agree that, you know, these these resources, we're just finding out now that we can use them more sparingly with adopting soil health principles. We're just, we're just learning that we can use phosphate sparingly. We can use a little bit of nitrogen here and there sparingly, and the system is still thriving. So we're still learning as we go, but, but yeah. Coming back to how you're managing stuff, and, and I guess like you're saying, using phosphate sparingly and using nitrogen sparingly, I'd probably actually say it's more about using it more efficiently as it's more of a efficiency thing. If you only need to use 50 units instead of 100, then you're winning as far as I'm concerned. So your point before, you're talking about fungal, you know, you're focusing on your fungal diversity in your soil and trying to overcome that bacterial dominance. How are you monitoring, like you're, fun, you're saying you want to focus on your fungi, um, how do you actually go about knowing what you've got, what's your start point and measuring your progress and what are you doing to try and bring in that fungal diversity to or up that fungi to bacterial ratios? Okay, so, so initially we take soil samples and we send them away to the Soil Food Web New Zealand where they literally count the fungi and bacteria in the sample. And I have attended a microscope course, so I plan to do more of that myself in the future. I met some amazing people on that course as well. So yeah, initial stages, count the fungi and bacteria, work out the ratios that we've got there, and then determine methods of how we can enhance that, whether that be yeah, mechanical aeration to help speed things up. Yeah, feeding feeding that fungi with um Fish type fertilizers, fish generally fishes feed fungi and, and seaweeds, etc., feed bacteria. Um, but you do want to balance, so the bacteria are important, but we're still, we're still trying to enhance that, that fungi to get that ratio back to one to one where pastures grow the best. So, so there's that side of it, but there's also the grazing side of it um, because compaction will, will turn our soils bacterial. So we've got the hoof compaction. So if we've got short covers and yeah, if we've, if we've got short covers with with soil exposed, that's generally going to be compacted. So this was another reason why we started to move to slightly taller grazing. And for parts of that growing season, we were also mobbing cattle up tight and laying down litter, which can help manipulate the soil fungal bacterial ratios and yeah that that litter that is laying on the ground helps feed that system but also I think it, it needs to come from really from the recovery periods just not coming back to those those habits too soon that that's that that soil and that root interaction with microbes fungi and bacteria that needs to have time to, to heal between each grazing. And I still feel that we're coming back too early at certain parts of the year. And the other cool thing about that test that is done at the Soil Food Web NZ is that not only do you get the ratios of 
the fungi and bacteria, but you also get the the total counts and the the active count. So Cheryl, who is the technician at Soul Food Web NZ, will use a, a dye and go into a dark room to identify the ones that are respiring, to identify the ones that are active. And a lot of the time, it is just a case of feeding them, but sometimes you'll have low total counts where you need to not only address the, the habitat and the food source, but you'll also have to look at how am I going to actually get that you know, foundation or, or that inoculation started. And then you might look at things like inoculating with, with likes of your compost mark that you're brewing, those high fungi Johnson shoe compost using resources off farm. Well, you know, that's massively powerful for getting that whole system. You know, that's quorum sensing in action, isn't it? For sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, the, um, and the land we purchased actually, it was, it was highly compacted and um, the aggregation throughout that land was quite poor. So initially we did a lot of um, summer crop and autumn some spring grazed crops that were multi-species crops, high biomass underground, high biomass above ground um, to try and break that that structure up underneath and and add in good root mass to help stimulate that that biome or that that um yeah just that food web just to help feed them and accelerate that the growth of that. Um because we do have good mycorrhizal fungi here, but it's just it's that it's it hasn't been needed um because the way the land's been farmed. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's getting those interactions working again, and then all of a sudden our land becomes more resilient, we can hold more water, we can cycle more nutrients, just builds on top of each other. I think that's also just a great sort of point to add in. You know, our aim is to, or your aim is to um, get to a fully pasture-based system, and when we're dealing with inheriting land that's been, you know, Let's just use the word misused or or misunderstood. Something you know, we've got degraded resources. We need to get that soil functioning again so that it can handle a perennial system. So using, um, you know, a short term, you know, annual base high high biomass, um, large diversity crop just to prime the soil is a, a great you know way of starting that system up. You know, it's like um creating the I use the analogy often once you've it's like a flywheel once you've got it started it's very hard to slow down and and to get it started requires a bit of energy and sometimes the initial energy is all you need that initial start exactly yeah we want to cycle that carbon but we also want to have the ability to store long-lived carbon in the soil mm. and that 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 from that we, we build humus and we um Start storing more more water and become more resilient, and that's that's kind of I see carbon as the currency, and water here is our most limited nutrient. So yeah, we we struggle in the dry. So if we can if we can um, increase the that, that sponge, yeah, 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 wet um, in the winter, dry in the summer. It's like, what can we do about that? So by addressing the dry summer. By increasing this soil carbon sponge, we're we're also um, addressing the winter issues because in winter our soil is then absorbing and infiltrating more water. 
uh, filtering more water for the catchment. So it's a double whammy. It just it, the, the system just keeps evolving. It's so simple when you when you talk about it, isn't it? Once you get down to it, it we're dealing with all these symptoms, but the the solution is really simple, and a lot of it is just basic hydrology, just a, a broken water cycle. Broken water cycle, broken nitrogen cycle. It's yeah, just needs a little bit of tweaking. Um, with our bale, bale, winter bale grazing now, um, I admit that we're we're actually buying in hay, so we're actually we're taking from someone else's natural capital. Okay. So that's not fully sustainable, and I don't love the word sustainable, but that's not that's not fully sustainable um, to steal someone else's natural capital to build your natural capital. So that's that's the way it is at the moment to work the system out. Um, and it's a very cheap form of introduced nutrient, isn't it? Huge. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's it is. almost like robbery when you think about it. <laughs> Well, it's not only um, the nutrients, but obviously it's a big one. Uh, it's talked about in the chat, in the quorum sense chat a lot, and Mike Porter and the cropping guys are obviously pretty good at working at, you know, what a bale of straws worth in terms of nutrients. Um, but, yeah, when a, the bulk of that bale is actually carbon. Mm-hmm, 80%. Yeah, um, plus the nutrients. I guess when you start putting that carbon value on the carbon in that straw, it is a, bi- a big thing. And when you're talking about, you know, especially in Southland, the the wider context that is the whole winter grazing problem that is in Southland. And if you're buying straw from old mate up the road in the same catchment, then as a catchment, you're taking it from one place and shifting it to another. It's not necessarily sustainable, which is a tricky one, I guess, but it's the goal. That's right. Yeah, no, no, I agree. I mean, um, I guess the goal would be to be fully self-contained and potentially growing standing pasture to winter on. Um, but I mean, yeah, that's a that's the trajectory that we're on. Um, that's the focus at the moment, and we'll work that out as it comes. As far as your other inputs, like your your compost you're doing yourself and your and your fish and seaweed and things like that, to you are they a a, a setup to get you on that trajectory and then hopefully be able to less or remove those inputs or are they a sort of a you think they'll be an ongoing thing? Um I mean I do I follow Christine Jones a lot and she talks about the legacy load of phosphate we have in the soil. So just monitoring our soil tests. Um, our roots now are going down past thirty centimeters so we need to be soil testing that deep now. And oh sorry, sixty centimeters. So I actually need to be soil testing down that deep to to see what's happening. How um, do you do that? Do you core just to that depth or do you take some shallow cores, deeper cores? What's your strategy around your soil testing and monitoring? Uh, at the moment at the moment um, thirty centimeters taken from the surface and then and then dig down 30 centimetres, take another one, dig a square hole and then take another one. Because we're seeing roots getting down into the clay now and starting to change the colour of the clay. It's becoming this streaky brown um, brown colour. Um, so there's exudates that are oozing into that clay and turning that into humus. Pretty cool to see. 
very yeah. exciting. It's yeah. incredible. Yeah, it's very exciting. And it's not only exciting for the you know added value of the carbon being in your soil, but it's probably not a bad time to mention the prospect of being paid for that carbon, which I believe is not far from us. If you're yeah, monitoring I, now, I haven't, I haven't followed that that closely, but that will eventually be another income stream for farmers for sure. It's happening in Australia and it's taking off in America at the moment. Yeah, under this grazing management, we managed to increase soil organic matter by 5% in one year, um, 1% in two years. So I thought the experts said there was impossible. Organic matter is 58% carbon. So we're drawing a lot of excess CO2 out of the atmosphere done in this way. And we've got meters of clay, so that that parent material can all be, in my mind, converted to humus through through root interactions and um, photosynthesis. And dare I say it, you know, cows. Everyone (laughs) thinks that, you know, animals are bad and having animal farming is destroying the planet. Sure, animal farming, the way we're doing it now is. But if you're farming like Mark Anderson, we're going to reverse this thing quicker than it came here. Exactly. I like that that analogy about the hammer. You can use a hammer to build something up or you can use a hammer to tear something down. And it's very much the same as managing a herbivore. You can use the herbivore to build something up or you can use it to degrade something. So, yeah, it's, it's pretty cool. Um, Judith, Judith Schwartz, um, I've read a couple of her books. Um, one is Cows Save the Planet. Another one is Water in Plain Sight. And another one is Reindeer Chronicles. And they're all, yeah, great books. Yeah, she's amazing. Worth so, all that being said, Mark, um, it sounds like you're on a fascinating journey. Would you say you're perception of success has changed um like how do you define success now to be honest i never even really thought about that but um i have thought about it more in the last in the last few years having gone through that dairy system that that you talk about in some of your podcasts and i've i was very much the same to be honest but now success would would be quite different to most, I think. It's certainly changed over time, um, probably away from more of a consumption culture to one of moving to a more simpler life. Um, I guess one day if my kids said, oh, well done for changing direction or going on a different path to the betterment of society or planet, then that would be pretty defined as success. Wow. That's... um. Give me a bit of a shiver up the spine. Um, and and we're, only all... here, we're only here for a blink of time. So what I've established is that, you know, you can actually make some impact in that short amount of time. Yeah. Like you're doing as well. It's pretty cool. It's, it's, I, I, the way I see it is it's, it's a, a collective awakening. People are waking up. Consumers are wanting to know more about well, what's behind the curtain? Farmers are waking up to the underlying desire to, you know, stop the fight of the never-ending battle to control nature. The view of success now is very different to 
to that which when I started out in my life and, and my career, it was a pretty miserable life when it was all about trying to be better than everyone else. You said the word a more peaceful life or a you know a, a less fast-paced life. That, to me, is a, just a byproduct of accepting that we are no better than nature and, and joining, like you say, riding that piece of the wave. It's pretty uncomfortable being controlled by something else and you've got no... You know, you've got no say in where you're going, but once you stop fighting it, man, isn't it a ride? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's pretty cool. Um, I um, I heard the other day that 30% of the world's population, uh, no, sorry, 50% of the world's population is at the age of 30 or less, and their two main focuses are climate change and social equality. And through all that is going to come... Um, how food is produced and all, all, all environmental issues, right? It's all that, okay? So I just have no doubt that climate-positive foods in the future, if you're not producing climate-positive foods, see you later. Yeah, the consumer always wins, eh? Yep. Yeah, like it or yeah. not, we are, a, we are a consumer-driven market and that is as much as it's on us to better the way we do things and, and try and work more with nature it's also as much a responsibility of the consumer to look behind the veil and demand that yeah like you say that uh that climate uh positive food when you stop and look at the effects that we can have and when people say it all starts from the soil that there's a whole lot of truth in that but the ripple effects are just huge and i think the more we share the more we have these conversations the more we spread out our mycelial network i like to use that analogy you know, we all become better for it. And, and as long as we keep strengthening those relationships, we keep growing like a mycelial fungus, one cell at a time, one conversation at a time, one, you know, action at a time. But I just want to thank you, Mark, on, on behalf of Quorum Sense, uh, Duncan and Jake and I, for joining us. It's been a real pleasure having you on, man. And again, really love hearing you share about your story. It's very inspirational for me and uh, I can only say personally I, I really you know am behind you 100% and I look forward to watching you continue making the the, the impact that you are because it's it, I don't know if you realize it but it's phenomenal so keep it up man well thanks for the opportunity it's been amazing to talk to you guys um and I'm, I'm loving the quorum sense network it's just just the total positive vibes coming out of the network um and i mean i hope today's been been helpful i mean it hasn't been totally technical but yeah we're not losing sleep over over technical (laughs) keep it simple stupid (laughs) that's right jake uh yeah so i guess we can't let you get away mark without that question i did pre-brief you on of uh what would you like to say to someone starting out on their regenerative journey as a piece of advice? So, I mean, I would um, just be curious and just ask questions, really. Uh, and then and then just pick up the phone and ring someone who's, who's doing it or who's connected to people who are. That's what, that's what I did. Um, and then there's so much information available out there now it's just just amazing and the quorum sense network is a huge resource too and it's just growing and growing um, with like-minded people so yeah just um 
start small and um, have an open mindset that goes a long way. Yeah, no, definitely. Awesome. Thanks very much, uh, Mark. And uh, thanks, Jake, for sort of jumping in and co-hosting with us. It's been pretty cool just to, no, yeah, since, since you've been here, it's been been awesome bounce off all you guys and yeah really great to chat you to you again mark um yeah definitely for young guys like myself you are an, an inspiration someone to look up to so thank you very much thanks jay thanks appreciate it this podcast was supported by mpi's productive and sustainable land use extension services fund the information opinions and ideas presented in this podcast are for informational purposes only and do not constitute professional advice any reliance on the content provided is done at your own risk Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Quorum Sense podcast. Subscribe, share, and if you have any comments, questions, or topics you'd like us to cover, please email us at podcast at quorumsense.org.nz or visit the quorumsense.org.nz website where you can also access past episodes. We hope you have an enjoyable week and that you've got something of real value from this podcast. Be sure to join us for the next exciting episode. We'll see you then.